This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, you're listening to another episode of NCD Chronicles on health and living with me, T. Shaoik. On this series, we go beyond the disease diagnosis to look at the lived experiences and real challenges faced by people who have non-communicable diseases. On today's episode, a rare condition that isn't typically labelled as a non-communicable disease. Motoneuron disease goes by several names. In the United States, it's known as amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease, named after the American baseball player who played in the Major League from 1923 to 1939. Lou Gehrig succumbed to the disease after two short years. But another famous person with the disease, theoretical physicist Professor Stephen Hawking, lived for more than 50 years with MND. Don't believe in everything that you read. There are no two persons suffering from ALS that is the same. Albert Koo is someone else who defies your expectations of MND. Hello, my name is Albert Koo and I'm 53 years old this year. I'm actually a lawyer by profession and I'm still having my little practice where I am still attending court, doing my litigation matter until to this very day. And uh, I've actually been diagnosed with uh, ALS or rather amyotrophic lateral cirrhosis or MND in Malaysia, which we are commonly referred to in the year of 2018. The challenges for me is that I've always been a very, uh, how should I say, outgoing person. Normally, I love the adventure. I like to camp. I like to go hiking. I like to go mountain climbing as well as uh, cycling and even including running as well. And all these things stops. And uh, to this very day, I still have nightmares occasionally thinking about what have actually happened to me. You know, the, the fact that I can no longer walk anymore. One thing about ALS is that uh, it is known as a frozen man disease. Or rather, we can actually call it as one where it is where the shrinking of the new brain. And what it affects the uh, sufferers or the patient would be this. Uh, if it actually affects the brain, uh, then eventually the the body, the motor stops to work. You know, stops to work. Uh, so, so for me, my condition is actually started out with my left leg. I started walking with a limb and then eventually it, it progresses to my thigh. For motor neuron disease, um, it's a disease affect the motor neuron, and motor neuron is responsible to make the muscle move. That's Dr. Lo Yi-Chin, a consultant palliative care physician at a private hospital in Klang Valley. So basically, there are two main types of uh, presentation. One set of patients is affect their so-called hands and leg, then they find have some weakness, maybe difficulty to lift up, maybe the finger, you know, uh, not so effective or the leg is a bit weak. Those, this is what we call the limb onset of motor neuron disease. The second set of clinical presentations is about affecting the swallowing muscles. So patients uh, affecting like the throat muscles, they have difficulty to swallow or they might have a slur speech or they might their voice can be like very soft. You know, so their speech is not clear. So this is what we call the bulbar onset. But sometimes with the limb onset, they might progress to involve uh, difficulty in swallowing and in speech as well as the disease progress. As motor neuron disease is a progressive illness, palliative care comes in to provide holistic care, especially as the disease reaches advanced stages. But let's go back to seven years ago when Albert was running in a duathlon. In 2016, there was actually in April, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was early part of April when I was actually participating in one of these events in Putrajaya. This was actually a cycling, running event. And uh, as I was actually running, the first part has no problem. Then I cycled. As soon as I finished cycling and I got down from the bicycle, as I was like starting to run again, I started to freeze. I could not even take the next step. It's as though the entire leg actually got rooted on the ground and I can't even lift up my legs to just move then. 
And that was actually, when my friend was actually running alongside with me, he actually stopped and he looked at me. He says, that, why are you not running? I said, bro, I can't run anymore. And uh, I said, that if there's a car that comes up now and if it's going to hit us, because we were running on an open road. And I said, if a car comes down and if it hit me, I can't even get out of the way. So that was actually what happened. And then, I, however, after that, I, I, then I started walking. Then, then, start, then the next moment, I could actually take one step, one step, and I started walking until the end of the, the journey. So what happened was right after that, then I had another climb. I went up to Mount Kinabalu. And after coming down from Mount Kinabalu, I had the most severe cramps I have ever had in my whole life that I could not even walk properly. I could not even, uh, I couldn't even take the next step. And uh, what happened was uh, my friend had to piggyback me and uh, they have to lift me up. Uh, two persons have to lift me up and then, that was it. That was the thing. But I never took it seriously. I never thought that this would actually eventually develop into something that is more serious. I did not see any uh, medical attention for this period of time as well. According to Dr. Lo, a delayed diagnosis is very common, especially among people who have slower disease progression and because there is no one definitive symptom of MND. In 2017, Occasionally, I would actually feel that my legs are very, very cold. You know, from the thighs down, I would feel as though it is actually freezing cold. It is like as though it's on ice. And uh, But I never took seriously about it. And I thought that this is just maybe just plain uh, normal thing. However, in the year of 2018, I was actually up in uh, the mountain in China. After coming back, I started to feel something different. started walking with a little bit of like off balance. And uh, eventually, it was actually eventually in the month of March where it became more uh, obvious. My sister actually asked me if I actually had any problems with my leg. Why am I walking with a limb? I do not know that I have been walking with a limb. And uh, she told me that, yes, you have been walking with a limb. She asked me if I'm actually in pain, but I said no. Then uh, what happened, I continued on and uh, I climbed another few more mountains. And in one of the particular mountains uh, in Indonesia in which I was actually climbing, uh, as I reached the campsite, the year before where I was climbing, it only took me about six and a half hours to actually reach the place, the same place. But this time, it was 11 hours. I have not even reached the place yet. So something is not right. And when I reached the campsite, as I got settled down into the camp, one of my 10 mates actually told me this. He said, look at your shoe. And I didn't notice this. But as I looked down, I noticed that on the left side, it was filled with mud or rather it was covered with mud. My shoe was actually covered with mud, but my right was clean. So obviously I had been dragging my feet uh, all along the journey. And it was when I came back and then I got some attention being looked into. I did my CT scan, MRI and everything. And uh, that was it. And uh, I was actually told that uh, I'm, I'm having, uh, at that point of time, they were only just telling me that I have focal uh, MND, meaning it is only affecting one limb. So the neurologist informed me, perhaps maybe we can just pray that if it's in your year's time and if it doesn't spread, then it is only focal. However, it was not to be that, it, as, as it kind of like weakened my right leg eventually as well. And uh, so now I'm paralytic, meaning I can no longer walk from waist down. So I'm actually half paralyzed in a sense. Um, but uh, as it progresses also, I'm beginning to feel weakness in both my arms these days as well. I am not as strong as what I can do in the past. And uh, my hands would freeze up or rather they were cramped up in a very awkward position uh, whenever I get up in the morning or when I'm in a cold place. So that's exactly what's going to happen. So And it is actually starting to limit my mobility, my movement. What did it mean to be able to put a name to your symptoms, but also at the same time to be told that you had a terminal disease? Yes, I went through something that was actually quite challenging. Uh, the entire, from that period of time after being diagnosed, I started changing. And uh, one of the first change was that I started having long hair. And that was actually, you know, I, I had this long hippie hair, and uh, a lot of people actually came up to me, is everything okay with you? And I was actually, initially, I was uh, seeking the answer as to what could likely have caused this disease. 
until the year of November of 2019, when I finally attended a church camp, or rather it was actually, we call it a silent retreat. And it was actually at this silent retreat where I kind of like found the answer. And it was actually written in the Holy Scripture. As I was just reading through the Bible, I just found that that's the, that's the answer that God was trying to tell me all along, that he knew that this is actually something that I'm going to be going through. And I just have to just accept accept it. And from then on, I I guess my journey was actually made simpler in a sense. I started accepting that this is something that I have to go through. When we talk about having a diagnosis that is shocking, so a patient will go through five types of reaction. So like we said, one, shocking. Then they might deny. And when patients deny what happened, they go doctor shopping. But that is also acceptable because something very hard to accept. Or they deny that this is not MND. So patient will have shock denial. They will start bargaining. So bargaining of, you know, if I do this, whatever, I might buy more time. So self-bargaining uh, does happen. At times, they have depression. Acceptance is what we, the book say it will, but uh, not easy to say accept. Yeah? And if can't accept, it's also not wrong. So all these emotions, the five types of emotion is like a yo-yo. And this is well described by Elizabeth Kobler-Ross, who is also a pioneer of to say that, you know, after breaking a bad news, these are the five types of emotion. But I would like to bring up the sixth emotion. And that is, guess, hope. Yeah. So what I've learned throughout the years is life is very resilient. Nearly all MND patients, when they know this, they have hope. Why? Hope to live longer, hope to live better, hope to have more meaning, you know, hope to enjoy more. We, we tend to appreciate life much more. Some people may think, um, why give them false hope? Because their time is limited and, and uh, are we making them hope for something that they won't achieve? Okay, good question. We, are, we do not want people to have false hope. So therefore, we need to have realistic hope. So here I want to bring up is um, when patients have advanced disease, of course, there are people in society also taking advantage of selling false hope. Okay, We would, do not encourage false hope. But we encourage realistic hope and we encourage to live life in the present moment as well as possible. Yeah. So I give you an example. I remember I will quote this person as Sue, but I did got her permission to share her story. So Sue was a um, lecturer in one of the universities and she got a MND in her early 40s. You know, um, as she said, I'm very pretty girl. You know, she's married with eight children. So when she got a MND, first thing, um, as a scientist herself, she did a search and she knew that whatever is the Google information that, you know, you have limited. But she, in a way, in her mind, she set up to say that I'm going to live until go to see through my son enter the university. At that point in time, there's still eight more, eight or nine more years to go. Yeah. And you can say near impossible, but in her mind, she set up. So... When I saw her, that was on her fourth year into the disease, and she asked me, what else you think I should do that you can make me live longer? And she said, make me live longer a bit. And that point of time is where the non-invasive ventilation comes in. Yeah, So it's a BiPAP machine when you have you know, difficulty breathing, it will help you to ventilate better, and you might have maybe another few more months or one or two years to live. So so that point of time, we kind of talking about that. And she said, okay, uh, please help me to arrange and I'm going to use it. So she was in denial in the sense that when she was diagnosed, she defaulted treatment, denial. Then she started bargaining. Then she come back to clinic. Then she started using the machine. And that point of time, usually her children take turn to be with her. And the children also, 
she educated the children very well and prepared the children that her time might be short. But she always say, Mama akan cuba seberapa boleh. Yeah. And every time she bring in the children, she wants the children to know what to do. And she said, your job, doctor, is to teach my children how to look after me. And she never have a employed caregiver until the end because she wants her children to take turns. So when I do home visit, on the wall, there's a list of Monday who is in charge of what. So there is a timetable. So Sue lived through her life. And I still remember um, when the eldest son entered university, I asked him, what do you want to study? He said, of course, medicine. Then I said, why do you want to study medicine? Because doctors now is useless. No cure for MND. <laughs> you see, even the prof cannot do anything. So, so that is, you can, can you say uh, false hope? <laughs> so Sue continued to come to clinic. And one day the son called me up and to say he got into UM, medical faculty. Yeah. And later on, Sue passed away. But that is having more than 10 over years living with MND. Initially, Albert found it frightening to accept the fact that someone's life could end prematurely within two to five years. But in time, he decided not to measure his life in the number of years given to him. I'm thankful to my, my healthcare professional who actually looked after me. She actually just told me, she says, I'm sure you have been reading a lot. And uh, that is actually. Uh, the prognosis that uh, the medical world actually tells us. But uh, she says that just go on with uh, your life and uh, just make the most out of it. And that's, that's very encouraging coming from a healthcare professional because I know they are supposed to tell us the truth, but uh, she's actually quite encouraging in that sense. And I'm thankful to her to this very day. I will fully agree with Albert because whatever happened that you find from Google are not all correct. <laughs> That I can tell you for sure. <laughs> because many patients, the once they hear the diagnosis, they go and Google, then they get a shock of their life, they prepare. The Like what Albert said is, uh, no one really know our time. But what we do know is, if we do know what we need to do for ourselves, what need to be done, what we should have and prepare, definitely we live better and we live longer. And many patients have proved us, the doctors, wrong and living beyond the book. Realistic hope allows people with MND to live as well as possible. After the break, we'll hear from Albert about living with hope, but also about preparing for the realities that come with the disease. This is NCD Chronicles, our series that goes behind the diagnosis of non-communicable diseases. Stay tuned to Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Yes, we have disability, but disability should not stop us from living a happy life. Hello and welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiaoik, on another episode of NCD Chronicles, where we're shining the spotlight on motoneuron disease, a progressive neurological condition in which the nerves that control voluntary muscles stop working. MND is a rare disease. Globally, the prevalence of MND is 6 per 100,000 of the population. It is estimated that there are probably more than 2,000 Malaysians with MND and 600 newly diagnosed cases every year, which makes it around 50 Malaysians diagnosed with MND every month. That is no small number, considering that for every individual affected by MND, it is a 100% disease burden. As a consultant palliative care physician, Dr. Lo Ichin has seen the toll that the disease takes on individuals and their caregivers. It's a burden on self. Burden on self of you have to cope now with a body that is not as capable as before. 
Its burden on self is because of the physical disabilities, it affects the work. We, I've seen one young chap uh, lost his job um, and there's no um, social network kind of uh, support. So it's burden to, you can say, society and also burden to mainly also the family. But every person bears this burden differently. Albert's wife is his sole caregiver, while his daughter chose to pursue her tertiary studies in Malaysia so that she could be close to him. He credits his family's support for being able to continue the routines and activities in life that give him pleasure. When it comes to my wife, I think she's very, very strong. She's very supportive of me. Uh, she no longer question the things that I want to do and everything. Because until today, despite my condition, I would still travel. I would still go away to East Malaysia. And uh, I also would go camping with my friends. And sometimes my friend would just come over. They'll just come over and just inform her. They'll say that, okay, we're kidnapping him for a few days and then you will see him back in three days' time. And that's it. And then my wife would just say, okay, bye-bye, have fun. And that's it. She'll just send me off. Um, that's, that's the thing about my wife. She's very, very strong and very, very supportive. And she's been helping me all this while. That's pretty sanguine of Albert's wife, especially in the face of his progressive limitations. But Albert himself isn't someone who's easily defeated by challenges like being in a wheelchair. Uh, I was not able to actually do anything because, you know, having to walk to the toilet and whenever I come out, I sleep and I fall because the leg just won't hold up. And then, you know, you just crumple and then, and then you just fall down. So that was actually quite a very challenging period of time because I was also thinking about whether should I or should I not be on a wheelchair until I was actually advised to be on a wheelchair because... I noticed this. People who don't get on a wheelchair, they tend to actually go longer and stronger. But uh, once you're on a wheelchair, your your senses seems to tell you that, well, now you can relax, don't have to walk so much, you know, and then you get a bit weaker faster. Yeah, so that's that's the thing. That's the challenge that I actually had to go through. In the year of 2020 onwards, I can no longer walk. So I have to travel by using a wheelchair. And... Uh, the, the first travel was actually in September of 2020 to Sabah. And a very good friend and a dear friend of mine, he actually told me, he said he would go along with me to Sabah. And he took care of me. And uh, one of the things that he did was he actually reassured me. He says this, bro, you think I never take care of anyone. I took care of my mom when she was actually sick. So you don't have to be ashamed. This is part and parcel of life. And I would say that in the past, I was actually a very, very proud person. I would not accept help from people. But uh, I think that in itself actually broke me down and uh, to accepting help from people. And I don't mind calling him and asking him if he's able to help me to do this and do that. And he helped me. He helped me with my washing and everything. In fact, he was actually with me, helping me to carry me onto the plane and stuff like that. There are many misconceptions about what people living with MND can or cannot do. And these misconceptions can be disempowering and damage the individual's self-confidence, daily functioning, and even their will to live. The commonest misconception from caregiver or family is, number one, the diet. A lot of time, suddenly they go into vegetarian diet or whatever keto, you know, diet that is good. Now, patients in early stage of MND only affect part of muscle, but they do still need normal, good protein diet to maintain the muscle mass. So if they suddenly off certain diet, the body becomes deconditioned. So they get weaker, not because of MND, they get weaker because of, number one, a muscle wasting because of dietary restriction and also muscle wasting because of not using properly. That's why in the clinic, it's very important we need to always go through the dietary history. Yeah, the, the commonest misconception, I can say, in Malaysia is always the diet. Mm. You know, and I still remember seeing this patient and he lost weight suddenly. And then the family blamed me on the MND. Then when I went through the diet history, you know, he's not allowed to eat many things. And then he said, I'd rather die, Lord. that's why no point. You know, also no, because not eating enough, you're too weak to move. So we kind of have a set goal to say, okay, can you please let this person eat whatever? And I told this person and the wife to say that I want him, I said, what is your favourite activity? He like he said swimming. So I said, okay, you both go swimming, activate your muscle. 
Three months later, rather than come in with a wheelchair, he came into clinic with walking frame. Yeah. So the misconception is important to address. Another common misconception is that people living with MND cannot have sex anymore. I give you one example. I used to see one couple. The husband is our pulse, people living with ARS. And then he came to clinic. I saw him that when on the third time, the wife then complained that, you see, he, he doesn't want to eat this or that. He doesn't want to pantang. Uh, you know, he's very weak. He should, he should rest. So this person, this person has been like so-called depressed for last three visits. And then I kind of asked him that day to say that, I can see you're very frustrated, I said to him. Is this something that really makes you very angry and frustrated? I, I say, I don't feel you're really depressed, but you seem to have a lot of anger from, you know. Then he said, so you want to know, uh, Dr. Lo? You sure? He said, close the door, lock the door. <laughs> so careful. Then he asked me, he said, ask the wife. This is a patient, uh, doesn't affect the speech. He asked the wife to sit down. Then he said, doctor, can I have sex? And then the wife to say that, how can you have sex? You have MND, that will weaken you. And he said to the wife, he said, Lassa, I have no time for, you know. But he said, no, I have all the time. So what I'm saying is, we, we need to really listen to patients, uh, non-judgmental and open-minded. Of course, the wife has good intention, does not want him to be weaker. But having MND doesn't mean you cannot do many things. And that is what he said exactly. You know, having MND doesn't mean I'm useless. You know, so, so we need to respect that MND does affect the body, but patient can still behave as a... As, you know, as normal as they can be. When we talk about sexuality, it's about being intimate, being close, and feel being careful and connected. For Albert, work was something he persisted in continuing, despite the barriers that sometimes arose. Uh, in the past, I would do a lot of the things by myself. I used to actually travel to, maybe in the morning I would be in Ipo, in the afternoon I would actually be in Malacca. You know, I used to run all over the place in my line of work. But uh, as soon as I was actually diagnosed with this disease, a lot of this were actually taken away from me. So my colleagues actually would actually replace me. They would do a the, lot of all those things. And I'm actually reduced to doing strategy planning as well as with regards to just a perusal of documents and, 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 and some, some of these things. But I'm still arguing the matter in court. So to a certain courts, I can still go. But when it comes to smaller courts, I can no longer go because whenever we go to the smaller courts, they do not have any lift facility. So I can't even go up to the courtrooms and everything. So that's where it actually hindered me from really participating in those smaller courts these days. I still remember in one of the courts in Bandarabarubangi, when I went over, uh, when my uh, when a friend of mine actually saw me, what he did was he actually got his driver to piggyback me up to the second floor for me to just attend the court proceedings. And after that, he actually got someone to actually piggy me back down as well. So that was actually the difficult part about uh, practice these days if we go to a courtroom that does not have a lift facility. The only thing is for those in private employment is very challenging. Many uh, patients are asked to stop, um, very little or hardly no compensation and kind of no support. And this is where uh, we hope we want to bring the advocacy to the corporate, yeah, to, to make people understand and hopefully be more helpful to the employees. I still remember um, there's one young Malay uh, pals he has MNT, but um, he has limb onset, but he can use eye tracker. He can still work full time. So the how the employers treat the employees is important because if the employees can still do what they hire for, even limited by the physical function, they should be given a chance. There is no cure for MND and treatment is aimed at helping individuals manage their symptoms and achieve the best possible quality of life. There is actually no treatment whatsoever. So now whenever we go back uh, to the specialist, they would actually just monitor us and look at our ALS FSR. It's actually a certain point system to see how we are in our 
condition. The other thing that they actually looked at would be the general uh, overall being of us. One of the things that they looked at is the way we breathe and they would be very careful with our respiratory because it is when the disease actually hit the respiratory and there will be a lot of uh, situation when one gets weaker in breathing or heavier the breathing and then uh, there will be a lot of phlegm or there'll be excessive saliva and all those things. And when that thing happens, uh, that's where someone would actually need uh, palliative uh, assistance, like for instance, a, a mask to be worn on and then with the ventilators uh, to help them with their breathing. So uh, normally, uh, someone with uh, ALS or MND, it is when their lungs give way. That is when life ends. Now, come from the in terms of the healthcare system, I would like to mention about uh, motor neuron disease multidisciplinary clinic in UMMC University Malaya Medical Center, uh, which was set up by Prof Nortina. So this is what the patient need. The patient need a team of healthcare professionals to look into their different needs, and palliative care is only one of the components. But the multidisciplinary team is the key. So we hope that there are more hospitals to set up the, this, what we call MDT clinic across the country. Yeah. Okay, it means that, right, MND patients have to see a neurologist, but if they have like swallowing problem, a food or any symptom, they need to see the palliative. Definitely, they need to see the rehab because of muscle weakness. There are energy-saving techniques that they can do. So the minimum basic three specialties they have to see, and then the physiotherapist, and then the speech therapist. So if you need to see five disciplines, you have five appointments, five different days, it's headache. But in this clinic, you see the three doctors in one clinic. What are the needs that you seek to support through palliative care? Number one is education. Correct the misconception, giving the right information like we say about diet, about activity and common problem like constipation. Uh, if they are constipated, then they have a lot of other problems. So it's about educate and to, to prevent symptoms like constipation if possible, to treat if they have any symptom. And also one of the key important in palliative care is about advanced care planning. It's about understand from the patient what are the things or treatment that patients want or don't want. So some patients will say that, you know, if I have breathing problem, I, I would want to try on this breathing machine if it's possible. Some patients will say, you know, uh, no matter how, I don't want the machine. Or sometimes when they come to a stage they have swallowing difficulty, they might need a feeding tube. Yeah, through the stomach or the nose. So, so these are the things we would want the patients to kind of understand in advance because we do not want them to go so much wasting. So the minute they can't eat properly, we should thinking about nutritional support. Yeah. So this is about advanced care planning that you know, uh, we'll discuss bit by bit over the clinic session. Mm. And apart from advanced care planning related to medical issues, what else should uh, individuals and their caregivers also plan for? Now, the, if possible, the, um, we say the person that matters or the surrogate of the patient, we want them to be present during the discussion so that they know. Some patients would even want to proceed to discuss like, you know, in an event, if I stop breathing, I do not want resuscitation. And all these need to be known to the family. That is one thing the caregivers need to do, is to understand, to know the decision. And third is to learn the skills of handling the patient. Handling physically means that uh, sometimes we have drooling or saliva, how to clean it, how to keep it nice, you know, or like um, uh, transferring because inconvenient. So how to carry the patient from bed to wheelchair and like self-care. So this a lot of caring that needed. I believe that uh, palliative is, if not the most, I think uh, is one of the most important aspects when it comes to uh, MND. 
I think people should not shy away. People should not be afraid of palliative, but uh, to embrace palliative as soon as possible so that they can actually prepare themselves for what might come eventually. But people are usually afraid because they think it means end of life. That's right. And I think when you mention the word palliative, people will feel when you are palliative, you are considered useless. You are just waiting to meet your maker. But uh, I believe it is not that. Palliative is actually not a not such a frightening thing. It is actually, they are trying to normalize you. In fact, they are trying to give you the quality of life back to us as well. I think that's the most important what palliative uh, team have actually been doing in the hospital as well as in Hospice Malaysia. They want us to actually have the best out of this life, you know, that we can actually face with. The acceptance of one's terminal condition also means acceptance of the inevitable progression as the disease makes life increasingly challenging. As Dr. Lowe says, having realistic hope means being prepared for what's to come. As a lawyer, I think uh, one of the things that which we have to do is uh, to prepare a will. I think that's the most important thing. And apart from the will, I think the other thing that we can actually also be looking into is advanced care planning. What is actually advanced care planning? Advanced care planning would be things that we would still need to do, especially when the patient is no longer able to communicate his wishes and his intention. So in Malaysia, there is no requirement or there's no law whatsoever that requires uh, a person to actually tell the doctors as to what he wants to do or whatsoever. And most of the time, they would have to go back to the family and say that, okay, this is what we need to do. Are you okay to do this on him or not? So these are the things that the family would still have to communicate. But I think with an advanced care planning, it is something that where the wishes and the intention of the patient is communicated to the healthcare professional. So the healthcare professional would actually keep a record of what they need to do in the event when such a situation happens. Like for instance, say if the person actually loses consciousness and is in being in a state of coma, whether he wants to be on a life support machine or whether or not he wants to be resuscitated and uh, no, how many times he wants to be resuscitated and all these kind of things. I think it's important for the family to actually uh, be told of uh, his intention rather than to keep him in the state where he's not able to actually decide and uh, eventually, you might be prolonging his suffering rather than uh, allowing him to, to actually go in peace, you know. With a condition like MND, it is the individuals themselves and their caregivers who are their strongest advocates. They have to be, because society has a long way to go in understanding MND and providing the support that they need. After the break, Albert and Dr. Lowe on discrimination against people with disabilities in terms of societal attitudes and barriers. Stay tuned to Health & Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health & Living. On this episode of NCD Chronicles, we've been journeying with Albert Koo, a lawyer diagnosed with motor neuron disease in 2018. While MND may have partially paralysed him, it hasn't taken away his autonomy or his identity. But it's the barriers around him that turn his physical limitations into a disability. Being a person who has actually been uh, given a PWD or OKU, uh, we, we, we hold this card. So it is actually a card that actually gives us, a, render us a certain benefit uh, or privileges. However, whenever we go to the hospitals, whenever we go to any of the shopping complexes or whatsoever, we notice that a lot of all these privileges are taken up by other people without a car sticker, having an OKU. So that's one of the things that I would actually argue that people should actually equally include us in the society or rather include us in the community. They should not exclude us because we are also part of the society. We contribute towards the betterment of the society. But uh, I believe that there has been time where a lot of developments actually prepare a parking space for the sake of preparing one. And a lot of time, it is not according to the specs. So a lot of the car parks are just a normal car park, but all they need to do is they just repaint it with the blue paint over it and drawing the, the wheelchair logo on it. That's it. 
but it is actually very inconvenient because it would not be big enough for us to get out of the car properly. So that's one of the issue. The other thing is that the gradient of uh, the ramp or rather the slope in which we have to actually go up and come down would also be just a, on cosmetic, it looks good. It is there. But in actual fact, it is not practical. I have actually fallen down a few times on these ramps before. I was on my own. And as I was like going down, the, the ramp would actually end abruptly and I topple over and I would be sprawled on the floor. So I've actually fallen a few times. So these days, whenever I had to go up and down the ramp, there would be someone that actually uh, helped me or maybe when, when I'm alone, I would actually ask for help from somebody else. So I always believe that uh, the society should not consider it as uh, doing it just for the sake of us because uh, eventually this is something that uh, every one of us might need. But we have laws, right, meant to protect people with disabilities. Yes, we do. We do have uh, a lot of these laws and the bylaws that requires all these things to be done. But however, it's just that the lack of enforcement, and uh, that is actually one thing that uh, I think the lack of enforcement is the one that actually makes people not to be afraid of it. Because I think you can actually see it all over the place where you can see able-bodied people coming out of a car that has actually just parked on a, a OKU parking and they just walk away without without cares or without worries and then they just walk away. And no one dares to even confront them or whatsoever, especially if they drive big cars, you know. So, but it's just that do not deprive us, especially if there's any emergency or whatsoever we might need to do that is actually our place. But then, yeah, so, so it's just uh, something that we can look at uh, in a more progressive and in a more proactive way. A progressive approach to financial support would also make a huge difference to the lives of people with MND. I think the financial support is, is actually something that is very, very important. Without the financial capabilities, I think you are deprived of a lot of other things as well. So I'm just thankful that I've been blessed with a group of friends who love me a lot. And uh, they know that uh, for months when I was not working, they went around, they collected donations for me as well. And uh, they gave me money and they bought me a wheelchair. They got me things, you know, and that is the wonderful things that I've actually experienced from these friends of mine. And not only that, um, I think it is important because uh, the thing about, about financial bit of it is that if you don't have the money, you won't be able to actually take the medicine that you will require. For ALS, there's this drug called the Rilozole, and it's actually quite costly. It ranges from between $1,800 to $2,200 per month, and that is actually very costly. So for some wage earner or B40 category, I don't think they can even afford it. But uh, if they are with the government, then they would actually have the government's assistance on this one. So... Uh, medically, things are very, very expensive. Services are also very, very expensive. And uh, I think if you were to get a full-time mate to come in and assist you, I think you're getting having to pay something like 3000 to 3500 a month. And then that is not inclusive of your medicine and also your supplements and also your physio as well as your acupuncture or your other treatments. So I think on, on average, I think you might need to spend something like $5,000 a month. I asked consultant palliative care physician Dr. Lo Yichin about the insurance situation for patients when it comes to covering palliative treatment. If I'm not wrong, the MND Society under uh, our ex-chairman Mr. Benny that time, uh, we managed to talk to the insurance industry and for if I'm not mistaken, MND is under the 36 critical illness so patients can kind of claim when they are diagnosed with motor neuron disease. Even so, there are caveats to this. There is no consensus that palliative care is covered as part of the medical costs for MND, and it's still being appealed by patients and their healthcare providers on a case-by-case basis. However, for the insurance health coverage for inpatient hospitalisation, is something that uh, can be improved. Yeah, and I would like to quote this example from Taiwan. 15 years ago, um, the health insurance policy include uh, palliative care. Because palliative care is under internal medicine, is part of the internal medicine. So in Taiwan, is a, they call it national health coverage that the palliative care, either inpatient or even community, is covered. Yeah. And this is what we hope 
you know, we can work closely with the insurance uh, industry for patients and the society's benefit. I mean, no one wants to see doctors if they don't suffer. So if they come with breathing difficulty, with pain, and and they cannot get treatment because uh, have to, upon consideration, the patient do suffer though. Other safety nets provide certain benefits to people with MND, including Perqueso for registered employees, the Employees Provident Fund or EPF, which allows withdrawals from account two for medical expenses or healthcare equipment, and the Department of Social Welfare, which provides services for people with the OKU card. When I asked Albert if he thinks the safety nets are sufficient, he was frank in his reply. I believe that our current social uh, security or security nets are not sufficient. It is not sufficient because I think the welfare departments are only giving something like 350, 350 ringgit to sustain you each month. And uh, medically, I don't think you can even survive on that kind of amount. Uh, but one thing good about it is that uh, we have got an association which is called the MND Malaysia where they actually provide with uh, free rental of uh, some of these ventilators. Some of these ventilators could cost something like from the thousands to even 40,000s, you know, the ventilators, but uh, they are the more advanced machine that actually helps with the removal of the flames and the excessive salivas and also to actually help to clean and also to help with the breathing. Albert is referring to MND Malaysia, a non-profit organisation that supports the MND community in Malaysia. The association leases equipment like ventilators and eye trackers free of charge to people with MND who are registered with them and fulfil certain conditions. Finances are never far from the minds of the caregivers. It is the currency that determines their ability to provide their loved ones with the care they need. But there is an unseen drive that keeps caregivers going every single day. I think as a caregiver, what they go through, it's invisible. You can't see it, but they are going through tremendous pressure. What is going through their thoughts, you do not know. I mean, we don't know. We don't hear it from them if they don't complain. But we know that they are getting very, very tired. Uh, physically, they may be hurting themselves and especially having to lift up bodies that are heavier than them. And uh, emotionally, they at one point of time, they may be feeling that they are losing you, but yet they still have to continue to put on a very strong front to encourage us and to, to, to strengthen us. That's number two. The third part is mentally, they also have to prepare themselves as in what's going to happen to them after all these things is over. But I, I believe that the society needs to actually provide them with the necessary support. And one of the most important is that personally, I think as patients, patients sometimes when they call for help, when they want certain things, and when people don't come immediately to your, to your help or to your care or whatsoever, you tend to get very frustrated and get very, very angry. And I think as a patient, we just really have to live by that name. We have to be patient. Just got to wait until they are ready to come and help you. Don't shout at them. You do not know what they're going through. So I think as patients, we just have to learn to love to accept them. And, you know, whatever time they come and help us, accept it. I don't think we should be so demanding. And uh, I think our attitude should also change. We should also respect them, honour them. I think that's the more important thing that we, should, we need to do. And... Once in a while, I think they should also be given opportunity to take a break, which I think my friends are helping me on that. So that's where they would take me three days away or five days away to a place. And then when I come back, it's like I get a break, she gets a break, everyone gets a break. So I think that's actually, it gives us an opportunity to grow in that sense. Being diagnosed with a life-limiting disease changes your perspective on life. Albert shares what MND has taught him about acceptance, hope, and faith. I think in having this disease, one of the most important is you must learn to accept that this is something that is you can you cannot longer avoid it, and it is here already, and you just have to make the best out of it. So you accept the circumstances in which you are in. That's the first thing. Some of them are not able to actually accept that they are no longer able to do things. Uh, they are no longer able to cope with uh, the condition in which they are in and they feel very helpless about it. 
but I, even though as helpless as we may be or we be seem to be, I think there is still some good use in us. And then the next thing is that you have to live with hope. Uh, I always believe that living with hope is the one that actually gives you a perspective of what, what is going to happen to you. And uh, for me personally, before I was uh, uh, restricted onto a wheelchair, I used to actually visit fellow patients as well. And while visiting fellow patients, I would actually talk to them and encourage them and speak to them about the condition in which we are in, uh, telling them about how we can actually cope with all these things. And with all those, I believe in one thing. When I speak more or when I help other people, when I come back, I would feel stronger. I will feel as though I'm actually getting fitter and stronger. That is one thing. And I think giving hope to other people gives us back the same hope. So the most important thing is that uh, it is all right. It is all right to be sad. It is all right to cry. It is all right to feel frustrated about the condition in which we are in. I have cried many times. I think it is not a shame to for a grown man like me to actually cry. But I think it is okay for us to actually complain to our maker. You know, and we can actually say, why me? Why have you chosen me? You know, so it's like as though he feels that, well, I've chosen you because you're special or something like that. So, and I think most important thing is that holding on to our faith and uh, never give up on the things that you love. If you love to travel, just travel. If you love to meet people, just meet people. If you love to eat certain food, eat that food. People living with MND have particularly complex care and support needs in the final stages of life. While MND is a neurological condition, our conversations with Albert and Dr. Lowe have highlighted the importance of palliative care and how it assists patients to make wise decisions on treatment that will cause the least harm so that they can live all of their days meaningfully. I think one of the things that actually really matters is spending your time with your family, family and friends, those who really love you. Spend time with them as much as you can. Make memories with them. I believe that many a times people actually say uh, YOLO, you only live once. But I always believe in something else. I believe that you only die once, but you are living every day. Uh, I, I still remember when I first got diagnosed with these things back in 2018. Guess what did I do? I actually counted that there will be 1,800 days for me to live. And uh, so I was just going around and cutting out, okay, one day, one day, one day. So it's actually, uh, you know, I was actually marking out the days in which I was actually living until it came to realization that why am I doing these things? I should just make every day count, regardless of anything. So I just started doing, live my life like normal. And one of the things that I've actually done is forgive and forget those people who they have actually hurt you, those who have made you angry, those those who have cheated you, those who are still owing you money, forget about them. There are more important things in life than these people. And appreciate the people uh, who are there for you and live with gratitude. I think that's the most important. Live in the present. This has been NCD Chronicles, a series featuring the experiences and challenges of people with non-communicable diseases. If you missed any part of the show or previous episodes, you can search for it on bfm.my or on our BFM app. You've been listening to Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.